Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. And this week, we are speaking to a man who knows a thing or two about the ancient philosophic movement known as Stoicism, Professor Christopher Gill. Thank you for once again agreeing to talk to us. It's a pleasure. We have the impossible task of introducing this very complex, very influential, very ramified philosophic movement in one episode, overview style. So I thought we'd start with just some basic facts and figures, the boring stuff, but important, and then move into the development of Stoicism into the wider Greco-Roman sphere, later Stoicism. And, and lastly, talk about a little bit about philosophy, talk about what they believed and approach to the world. So first of all, background and development. In a nutshell, what was Stoicism? Stoicism was one of two major philosophies that originated in the Hellenistic era, in the third century onwards. They developed at Athens. Uh, the other one was Epicureanism. And Epicureanism and Stoicism have similarities and also great, great differences and were, were, saw themselves as opponents. In comparison with the, the dominant schools of the 4th century, those of Plato and Aristotle, they had certain characteristics, certain shared characteristics, Stoicism and Epicureanism. They were more unified, they presented a kind of package of knowledge, if you like. They also presented philosophy as a way of life and a basis for a way of life. Um, those are the two main characteristics. In other ways, they were strongly opposed. And one of the ways they were strongly opposed was that Stoicism saw itself as a philosophy for those who were engaged in the world, who were part of the community, and Epicureanism was the philosophy of those who stood rather apart from the community. And this was symbolized by the fact that Zeno, founder of Stoicism, uh, taught in the city of Athens, specifically in the painted stoa, which is just under the Acropolis in Athens. Now, what's a stoa? A stoa is a colonnade. It's a series of columns. It's, it's a shaded place. It's a place within the city, but shaded. I, I was there, actually, fairly recently hmm. in Athens. And there's a reconstructed colonnade. And you, so it's somewhere in the, the heat of Athens. And they're called stoics because he... He taught to Zeno and his successors taught in the, in the painted stoa. It had paintings on the walls. Whereas Epicurus taught in his garden. He had a large house outside Athens and his community was, he had a community, but his own community was outside. So that's, a big, that's one big difference. There were other, many, other major differences too. Brilliant. We'll hopefully bring them out as we go along. Now, you mentioned Zeno and we should talk about that gentleman. But before we do... Let's look at the state of the sources on Stoicism. So how do we know what we know? Well, the sources are poor. Nearly everything from the Hellenistic era, from the 3rd century, 3rd and 2nd century, um, down towards the end of the 1st century, is lost. We don't have any complete writings by all the major heads of the Stoic movement. Um, there were a series of heads who were the heads of this school, I'll say in a minute what this school was, uh, and they were all lost, except for fragments, comments, indirect reports. So all our evidence goes later. What is the evidence? 
Well, partly the first evidence chronologically is actually Cicero. Cicero writes extensively about the Hellenistic philosophy, and he's a very important source. Uh, there are then Roman writings, uh, most of which, again, uh, well, some of which have been lost, but they do survive in the different fields, in ethics especially, but also in physics. And there are Roman writings by Epictetus, Seneca and Marcus Aurelius, among others. Uh, and then later on you have the encyclopedic or dictionary type of works by Diogenes Laotius, and then later again by Stobius, but Stobius's version seems to go back at least to Aristidemus in the, in the um, age of uh, Tiberius. So you've got, and those, those uh, sources, those sort of dictionary articles, if you like, on Stoicism, are uh, what, although they're quite late, third century or, or even Sibius, I think, fifth century, they are believed to take us back to the early, early um, picture of Stoicism. So listeners will, will recognise our doxographic tradition that we've been talking about yes. in previous episodes. Okay. These are, um, so that the doxographic tradition is, is primary. Hmm. Is we regard that as where the primary source is, although they're very late. Yeah, but, um, and the, but sometimes citing the verbatim. Is sometimes citing verbatim comments, and 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 of course the consistency between the ideas put forward in these various sources enable us to to give a what we hope is a reasonably reliable account of their theory. Their right, that's actually something I find very interesting about Stoicism because which I'd like to re return to later on, the fact that it was very dominant, very, very important movement, and then seems to have just disappeared off the map to the, to the point where we don't have the writings of any of the founding members. While we well, we do, for example, have... yes, actually, the, yes, it's hard to know about the writings, but it, it was certainly, yes, it was certainly in the Hellenistic era, from the 3rd to the 1st century BC, it was certainly a dominant and perhaps the dominant philosophical hmm. movement, along with Epicureanism and scepticism, academic scepticism. Yeah, but let's come back to that. Yes, we'll come back to that. And then, you see, it's still an important movement. It's still an important movement in the first two centuries of our era in AD. It's only in the third century that it begins to be become less important, and we don't really, we can't really name any thinkers into the third century and later. So mm -hmm. it's, it has about five centuries of vitality. Which is not bad at all. Which is not bad. Now, we, we know when, we know where roughly, starting in Athens, we know what we know. We, we know a little bit about our sources. So let's talk about Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, Zeno of Kitium, and who he was, where he was coming from, what he had studied, what his background was, this sort of thing. Okay, we don't know much about his earlier background, but in Athens, he studied widely he studied with most of the major thinkers of the day he studied with crates well we do know or we are told that he was inspired to come to athens uh, by reading about socrates and this is of course terribly important because socrates was a very important kind of prototype for the stoics as a philosopher so he was inspired by socrates he came from phoenicia Socrates, who's dead by this point. Oh, yes, Socrates, Socrates died in 399. So he died at the very beginning of the 4th century. We are now at the very beginning of the 3rd century. 
So he died uh, quite a while ago, but of course he'd been celebrated in writings by Plato, Xenophon and others, and was, was the, already, I think, the kind of archetypal philosopher really, um, and thinker. Okay, so Zeno studied with, Zeno studied with Crates, who was a cynic, and they were one of the schools that traced their origin to Socrates. He studied also with Megarians, with Stilpo, with Diodorus Cronus, he studied, who were logicians, who also traced, their, traced themselves back to, to Socrates. Mm. And he studied with Polymo, who was at that point head of the academy, Plato's academy, and who taught a kind of combination of Platonic and Aristotelian ideas, and they too traced their origin to Socrates via Plato. So he was he studied, as it were, within the, if you like, Socratic tradition and with the Socratic schools, what we call schools. So he studied widely. So it, so it, he 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 knew virtually all the backgrounds. He didn't study with Theophrastus, who was an old, older contemporary of his. Theophrastus was the successor of Aristotle, and he was head of the peripatetic school but he would would there's no reason why he wouldn't be aware of it and of course through polymo he wouldn't be aware so he was aware of the whole background of if you like of ancient philosophy and earlier he he or his successors probably became aware of the pre-socratics especially heraclitus who who anticipates some aspects of their thought so it's a very it's a sophisticated background but he himself was independent. He performed an independent philosophy. So he's, he doesn't fall under any of these thinkers. He's independent. Right. And does he at some point, I, I suppose it's hard to visualize how this worked exactly, but presumably at some point he set up shop for himself. He started giving lectures, giving talks yeah. in the painted stoa. That's what he did. That's when he set up shop. When he was no, not listening to others, but talking, but talking to others. And apparently he had a very, as far as we can tell, a very kind of jagged, perhaps rather abrupt, rather compressed style. And we have the so-called syllogisms of Zeno, at least we know about them. And they're very compressed, very clever. And I think he probably had a very kind of um, charismatic but compressed style of doing philosophy, an oral very oral style of doing philosophy. And the history of Stoicism is, to a large extent, the working out of some of the ideas, some of the many ideas, in all the different main areas of philosophy that he formulated in rather graphic terms. So, for instance, we're told on, on the, the goal of life that he, he thought that the aim of life was consistency. Consistency. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> what else do you need to know? Well, yeah. then, of course, they then said, well, this then became uh, consistency with nature or uh, the life according to nature or the life according to virtue which would then seem as the one. So or the life your according pick. to reason. Well, no, not take your pick, because there's still it's still consistency, but it's consistency with consistency mm. with nature, consistency with with virtue, consistency with reason. So the Stoics, you know, it's a kind of group philosophy in a way, because it was extended constantly, extended and each probably each head of the school or indeed each Stoic gave his own particular twist, but it traced its origins back to these rather epigrammatic, compressed mm. ideas which were put forward by Zeno. Uh, he did write also, but he, you know, I think it was probably his lectures that were compelling. So each of these 
heads. It was different from Epicureanism, where Epicurus was the source, he was the source, and people went on reading Epicurus and studying Epicurus. It, was, it began Zeno, then there was Cleanthes, his successor, then Chrysippus. Chrysippus was the, in many ways the most important of the Stoic heads uh, because he wrote a great deal, he was highly systematic, his close associates became his successors. So he, in a way he remade the, the, the movement in his image and in later times really everything goes, not everything, but many things go back to Chrysippus. Mm. Many of our formulations, probably the later lexicographical sources, are primarily based on on Chrysippus. Right. But but what you find in the sources that they'll say, oh, Zeno says this, Chrysippus, Cleanthes says this, Chrysippus says this, uh, and sometimes they'll say Panaitis says this, Posidonius says this, and and yet they're not presented as radical alternatives. They're elaborations of the same core set of ideas. That's very interesting. So. Yes. One of the things you mentioned earlier about Stoicism, and we haven't even talked at all about what they actually believe, yes. except virtues involved somehow. Well, we'll, involved. we'll come back to that. We will, but it's universal, right? Yes. So it deals with yes. all the branches of philosophy or of human knowledge. Yes. And they they even have their own taxonomy of branches of, of human yes, knowledge. Yes, they introduced a, a, a tripartition of philosophy, which became very influential, subdividing it in a way that's different from Plato and Aristotle, into logic, physics, and ethics. Right. And that included everything. Mm. And they also maintained that these three branches should be brought together. They should, the, the, the wisdom involved a kind of synthesis of these, or at least of the key elements of that, and that a com the best possible understanding would draw on all of them. So it's a kind of gazamped, a kind of totalizing view. Yes, and it's a very, uh, very appealing way of approaching the world, very holistic. Very holistic. Holis holism, in many ways, their, their, their theory is holistic. There's an old distinction, goes back to someone like Isaiah Berlin, between splitters and lumpers. Splitters are people who, who see everything in terms of polarities and contrasts. Lumpers see everything in a kind of complex unity. Plato is a splitter, you know, uh, forms versus particulars, body versus soul, mind versus, well, whatever, um, the absence of mind. <laughs> um, Stoics are lumpers. You have, they think in terms of complex structured whole. So they are holistic. They're not reductionists. They're not reductionists. There were reductionists in the ancient world, but they were not reductionists. They wanted to, they recognized complexity, but complexity in unity and wholeness. I feel like we're being sucked into the realm of Stoic theory, but before we get there, I want, yes. to, I want to just show a sage-like staunchness and just stick with history, the nuts yes. and bolts of history for a few minutes more. You mentioned Chrysippus who was maybe the greatest Stoic after the founder of Stoicism and, and um, especially did amazing stuff in logic, which modern yes. logicians hail as, you know, if we'd followed Chrysippus instead of following Aristotle, we would have had the computer in the year 800 or something, you know, he's yes. incredibly on un understanding. Yes, the most sophisticated uh, logician probably in the ancient world. Yeah. Mm. And, but being a Stoic, he wrote on everything, right? Yes. Not just logic, but Indeed. ethics, etc. We now have the question of, we have this school of Stoicism, it's in Athens, but it doesn't stay in Athens for very long. It spreads out throughout the Hellenistic world to some degree. And well, then... to some degree. It remains Athenian for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. um, 
And presumably they all went on teaching in the, in the painted stoa. So the heads, we have a series of heads. Yes, I've mentioned already Zeno, Cleanthes, Chrysippus. Then we have another one, Zeno of Tarsus, I think. Diogenes of Babylon. A lot of them came from abroad, but settled then in Athens. It's an interesting... Interesting. They're the migrants, as people mm. like to say now. They're migrants. They came, yeah. they came from outside and they settled in Athens. And they contributed enormously, of course, mm. to the tradition. And then you get, in the second century, Panitius of Rhodes. The last head, the last head is actually Panitius of Rhodes. Not sure whether he, he taught in Rhodes or in Athens, but he was, he was the last head. And then you get, of course, the dis- huge disruption of intellectual life in Athens takes place with the Roman, uh, the Roman incursion in, into Athens and then you know, the, eventually the sort of destruction of the main of Athens as a, as, a, as a place and certainly as an intellectual place. And then you have dispersal. And then, like many things in the ancient world or intellectual world, intellectual activity moved to the centre of power, which was, you know, had been... Um, Athens, in a way, because Athens was a very powerful state, well, up to up to in the fifth century, fourth century, and it remained intellectually powerful. But then activity moved elsewhere to Rome, Alexandria, all over the Roman world, really. Hmm. But essentially, Rome. Now, this is interesting because we have among the Roman elites, by which I mean lit- the actual Latin-speaking elites of of the Republican period. So for our non-specialist listeners, the Roman Republic goes from about the 6th century BCE up until the 1st century BCE. Yes, then you have BC is the, the technical date. Right, the Battle of Actium. Then you have what we call the Principate or the Roman Empire, right? But it's under the late Republic that Greece actually gets conquered and brought into the Roman fold. Yes. So we're talking about 1st century. Yes, 2nd and 1st yeah. century. Yeah. And now at this stage, we have fascinating glimpses into the intellectual culture of the late Republic. So people like Cicero, mm-hmm. who were extremely well-educated and had actually traveled to Greece to, to further their education at the fonts, the fonts of wisdom of Athens and so on, and were also deeply learned in all things Roman, and seem to have spent their time having very cultivated dinner parties and talking about the newest developments in philosophy and what's the news from Athens and mm-hmm. among other things. So how does Stoicism move into the Roman world? Well, it moves into um, the Roman world in a number of ways. Romans, as you say, Romans from the second century onwards, you know, uh, it goes back beyond Cicero. Scipio Emilianus, uh, an earlier Roman uh, of that period is, is uh, supposed to have associated with Panitius. There was a famous embassy of three philosophers who came, yeah. came to Rome. So there were various contacts as, as Rome conquered Greece. So there was a great deal of contact between Greece and Rome. And the Romans, who, who in some ways were like, I suppose you might say, like the British in the 19th century, and the Americans in the earlier part of the 20th century were very fascinated by the European culture and Greek culture as it was then and wanted to assimilate it and, and acquire it. And they brought back many statues, they brought back many works of art, they brought back philosophers, <laughs> so historians, uh, edu- yeah. historians writers, poets, 
So they filled their houses with statues and they filled their houses, which were large houses, with uh, intellectuals and others. So, they, so gradually, more and more intellectual life to, moved to Italy, broadly speaking. So and we uh, have, a, I think it's, it's safe to say, at least among educated elites at Rome, about whom obviously we know the most because they, especially Cicero, left us writings. Yes. We don't know much about the educated elites of, I don't know, Tuscany or... Marseille, or about hardly anything about what uh, was going on in the lives of slaves and women and no. everyday folks. But we know a, a, quite a yes. lot about intellectuals at Rome in this period, and it seems that there's a background of that Greece. Greece is trendy in some way. Yes, it's cool to have Greek yes. stuff and have Greek. Yes, language. and of course, remember that Greece already. I mean, we say Greece and Rome as if these were two different cultures. They're not really. I mean, South Italy was 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 full of, you know, Greek-speaking people, Greek culture had been for a long time. Yeah. These countries are, uh, and Rome, Roman culture went back a long way. So in a way, the, the antithesis is, is it's, it's an oversimplification. But certainly, Greek influence becomes much more, much more apparent, much more explicit. And certainly our picture of, of the absorption of Greek intellectual life, yes, it owes very much to Cicero. Cicero almost kind of fictionalises it, just as Plato if you like fictionalized Socrates, so so Cicero in in different ways fictionalized the arrival of Greek philosophy into it. And he's a, he's a hugely important source for us because he he gives us a picture of of you know what philosophy meant in the first century in the latter part of the first century in ethics in in uh, not so much in physics but especially in ethics and epistemology which he was interested in. Well. I think at this stage we can't hold back anymore. We have to actually get into this. Yes. Stuff. Okay. Um, let me just ask you one other historical question to kind of yes. tie a bow on the ends of things. We have this, as you say, not foreign, but this Athenian Hellenistic philosophical movement, which has become very popular in Rome, in the ruling classes at least. And something extraordinary happens. We have an emperor of the later empire, Marcus Aurelius, who is a flourishing, card-carrying Stoic, which you'd think, okay, the Stoics really did arrive, but then Stoicism kind of disappears later in history. So I wonder if you could discuss these two moments. First, Marcus and his writing, and, and then seemingly the rather dramatic disappearance of Stoicism later on. I'm sure it wasn't actually dramatic in, when you were there, but we certainly don't have any Stoics after a certain point. No. For Marcus, the position is probably similar to what it was for Cicero. Stoicism was one of the major philosophies, perhaps the major philosophy. There are many people in Rome, or there are people in Rome, who give lectures, there are experts, you can go and study with them. And for Cicero, it's clear that the important schools in this period are Stoicism, Epicureanism, and academic scepticism of various kinds. So those are the very important ones. Plato and Aristotle are there sort of in the background. Well, Plato was because of the writings. Aristotle's a bit hazy. Mm. In a way, that remains the picture. And throughout the later Hellenistic and what we call the post-Hellenistic period, that is up until the end of the second century AD. So that's the picture. And then within that, you have then people who affiliate themselves who see themselves as, say, Epicureans, as academic sceptics. Cicero saw himself as an academic sceptic, though he had a great interest in all the other schools. Some people uh, identified themselves as Epicureans, 
and others identified themselves as Stoics. Among the Stoics, the most uh, well-known in the imperial period are Epictetus, who was originally a slave, one of Nero's uh, slaves, or a slave of a, sl a freedman of, of Nero's slave, and Seneca, who was an advisor to Nero, a very important political figure, but also a major Stoic writer, and he wrote in Ethics and Physics. And then Marcus, who apparently didn't write at all, he didn't write philosophy, he attended lectures, and he was famous, actually, for attending lectures as an emperor. This was something you didn't normally do. I mean, as an emperor, you, you govern, you reign. You're not <laughs> to be told, you're you to know, tell. But he went, he attended lectures, and mm. this was quite notable. And he, probably he went to different schools, but he was privately a Stoic, yes. And he wrote the meditations, which were, of course, entirely unknown. This was a complete, this was, nobody knew about the meditations till long after his death. It was completely unknown. It was a private philosophical diary. So although we know, <laughs> we think of him as a, a card-carrying stake, and probably that would have been known by those in the know, in, in public he was simply a, a very philosophical, intellectual emperor. Mm. And then, well, how did it decline? Well, you must remember that that, well, it didn't, you know, there were writers, there were Stoic philosophers right through the second century. Heracles was the last, I think, we know about Heracles, who wrote the uh, Elements of Ethics. Uh, elements of ethics. So they're quite, quite active through the second and first century. And then, well, then it just, yes, it, it, it just uh, ceased. But we, it wasn't <laughs> persecuted or anything. It just, no, just, it just, it fizzled it just out ran out of energy or there was... Uh, and, then, and then, of course, also in this period, we have the revival of Platonism and Aristotelianism. That's, of course, the big thing. So the next, in the next generation, or in the third century, we get Alexander of Aphrodisias, we get the commentator tradition. All this time, the commentary tradition was gradually building up in a little bit in the first century BC, much more in the first century AD, second century AD. And so the commentary tradition took over. That's what really happened. And then ideas were preserved or studied insofar as they could be fitted in with this commentary tradition of Plato and Aristotle and leading into Neoplatonism and all this sort of stuff. So those who have been able to kind of hold on to, the, to all the dates and stuff, who feel, who feel reasonably at home in um, the broad swathe of history from about the 5th century BCE to the 3rd century CE, will now have a fairly decent idea about the development, spread, and subsequent eclipse of Stoicism, historically, which is great. And I think we should go on to talk about what these guys believed. A good place to start might be the fact that you mentioned they have a, a tripartite uh, division of philosophy into logic, physics, and ethics. Yes, of course, we have this tripartition. Now, how does it, what, what gets included in what? Well, logic isn't just symbolic logic or formal logic, though it includes that. But logic, as it were, includes ontology and epistemology. Includes, to the extent that they have ideas about that topic, they, are, they fall under the heading of logic. Logic or dialectic, they, they mm. use these as interchangeable. So, if you like, the more hard theory aspects of the topic fall under logic. Physics is the study of nature as a whole. That's, I suppose, fairly straightforward, fairly traditional. And ethics, again, is... Well, roughly, roughly the same, I suppose, as Aristotle, but it includes, yes, it would include political theory 
and psychology to a large extent. Um, what is the psychology? Well, psychology is subdivided between physics and, and ethics. Ah, so psychology, uh, the physics side of it is the fact that everything about us, including our soul, is part of the universe. It's matter. It's made of matter. Yes. So you can yes. treat it from that perspective. Yes. Probably it's simplest to start with physics in the sense that they have a very clear view on that. So our psychology is part of our, our life as embodied animals. Yes. So one of their ideas, and here we, have the, here we can see the contrast very strikingly with Epicureanism. They thought that the universe was unified and also uh, animate and providential. The universe was also rational. The Epicureans, on the other hand, thought that the universe was uh, a fortuitous combination of atoms. Accidental. Not accidental. Random. Random. Material. Yeah. Material in a kind of reductionist sense. So that's a very clear contrast between the Stoics and the Epicureans. There are also other contrasts. But that then is, the, these ideas then, they, that's one very fundamental feature of their, their thinking. So they believe the universe is material. They don't have any of this immaterial substance that we've seen in Plato. Yes, they reject the platonic division between the material and the non-material. They have no time for platonic forms. They thought this was nonsense. All causes, for instance, are bodies. Right. And so causal action is embodied action or, or action of bodies. But they're not, on the other hand, reductionists. So body has a very broad sense for them. Another feature of their physics, this I think will help, is that they divide, they draw a contrast between the active and passive causes. The active cause, agency, God, rationality, also pneuma or fire. So there is an active element in the universe and there is a more material, acted on, uh, passive, uh, material element. You just talked about God. Yes. But people are going to be scratching their heads because we're, we've already said that there is no, there's nothing like um, an immaterial being or what, what in modern parlance might be called a spiritual being, even though spiritual is borderline case because that could be translated as pneumaticos. So what are we talking about here? If we're talking about God, if we're talking about pneuma, fire, this is matter? They're all the same. They're all the same. Yes, and also it could be called fate. Um, God, <laughs> fate, logos, they're all different names for the same dimension of reality, which is the active, shaping, forming dimension of reality. But it's not elsewhere, it's in it's in, it's in the world we live in. Oh yes, there's no separate God. There's no demiurge, no platonic demiurge. The demiurge is in the world. The demiurge right. is, the, if you like, the shaping. They were very aware, by the way, of the Timaeus, Plato's Timaeus. Timaeus was a, probably a huge influence. But for them, the demiurge was in the world, not outside the world. There was no personal God, no Judeo-Christian God who creates the universe. The universe is created, they do talk about creation, but they mean creation from within. It's the so-called contrast between, often drawn between immanent, I-double-M, immanent and um, transcendental. There's no transcendental God, but there's an immanent God. Right. So it's sometimes called pantheism too, you know, because God is... But it's the pantheism is wrong, because it isn't that God is in everything. God is in that dimension of the universe that is the active, shaping, rational... Right. structuring dimension. 
I think we've got that ironed out now. Well, that's a big, big topic, of course, a big, mm. big uh, feature of their thought. Because some, according to some ways of thought, they would be called atheist. According to other ways of thought, they would be called far and too... Pantheists. Pantheists. Pantheists or atheists. They were never called atheists in the ancient no. world. Some people thought the Epicureans were atheists. They denied this, but no... Well, always... they believe in providence, so that's the next thing we get to. Yes. That, that probably diffuses the charge of atheism. Yes. How does providence work, then? Okay, so the, the, the God, who is identical with all these other things I mentioned, exercises providential care for the universe, in the sense that God is the shaping, rational element in the universe. So God exercises providence for the universe. God enables the universe to function, to have life to procreate, to maintain itself. So providentiality, caring for, is, is one aspect of the pervasive force of God or activity or rationality or fate. <laughs> They're all the same. To in the world, in the world. So that, so it doesn't mean, okay, so providentiality doesn't mean, <laughs> it doesn't mean that in particular individuals are taken care of and other individuals are not taken care of. It doesn't mean that. Uh, by the way, I have to pause here and say there's this wonderful Betjeman poem where we have a rich lady sitting in some posh London church uh, like St George's Hanover Square and she's addressing the Almighty and she says, I mention for your special care 183 Cadogan Square. <laughs> now, the Stoics didn't believe that. <laughs> they didn't believe that the universe has a special care for 183 Cadogan Square, even if it was occupied by a prominent Stoic. Right. Um, the universe cares for everything, as it were. The, the, sorry, the God cares for everything in the universe. And it, and it manifests this care by giving it the capacity to live, to sustain itself, to, to preserve itself, to realise its constitution, its nature, and to create and care for others of its kind. That is where providentiality is exercised. So, stepping outside of our time for a moment and just thinking of this from a, what I guess is more of a modern perspective, it's almost like they're describing very much the kind of universe that a modern biological uh, scientist might yes. think we live in. Yes, biology, they, not if you like physics. We call it physics, but it's more yeah. like biology. Yeah, except they would they would say yes, we agree with you, modern biologist, on what you've just described. But it's just obvious to us that this is a divine yes and worthy of sort of awe and worship and reverence yes. phenomenon, while you consider it a, a completely valueless. I mean, valueless in the sense of value-free, not value-laden um, circumstance. We say that this, this is a, an unfolding of a divine nature in the universe. Yes, something like that. There's a modern philosophy called inactivism, um, which is a kind of branch of psychology. And in many ways, they're like inactivists, who are a kind of, they have a kind of teleological dimension of their thought but it's it's a kind of yes what you say is right it's biology with with in a viewed if you like in a, in a religious way that's not a, I think not a bad introduction to the, the basic view of how the world is and what it's made of and so on although there's obviously a lot more to explore there which we don't have time for what about ethics what about 
how are humans supposed to navigate this realm? Okay. Probably in ethics, it's the starting point, I think, would to be to go back to Socrates. And they embrace and give a more complicated version of three principles that are central, for, often seen as central for Socratic thought. Virtue is knowledge. Virtue is, is one or unified and nobody does wrong willingly. Um, so virtue is knowledge. They saw the virtues as, as forms of knowledge or expertise in living. It's the knowledge of how to live a happy life, how to live the life according to nature. Virtue is unified either because it's all virtue is an aspect of knowledge or because the virtues are interdependent. They saw the virtues as interdependent. Uh, there are different versions. There are different, often in Stoicism you have slightly different versions. Nobody does wrong willingly because going wrong, doing bad things, and the passions are forms of error. They're forms of mistake. Perhaps like Socrates, they thought that everyone, all human beings, are capable of perfection. They're all capable of wisdom. We can get all gain knowledge. We all have it in us to realise our nature or constitution as human beings and to achieve wisdom, even though in practice perhaps none of us do. But we all have that capacity. We all have the capacity to. That's why all our lives... Potentially, we can go on trying to become, to realise our nature, to become better people, mm. good people, to become wise people. So that's the core view, and it's sometimes expressed in the form of that virtue is the only good. That's another very important idea. They, they, they draw a distinction between the virtues, or virtue and the virtues, which are forms of expertise and enable you to live expertly, and other things normally seen as good, health, wealth, uh, the well-being of our family. They thought these were valuable, at least that's the orthodox Stoic view. They thought these were positively valuable things, and things that people naturally pursue and naturally shape their lives out of, but they don't make you happy in the sense of they don't enable you to live a good human life. To live a good human life, you need the virtues, you need expertise, you need to know how to do it. So that's the distinction between the virtues and the indifference. The virtues are what enable you to live a happy life, a good life, a human life. The indifference do not, that's why they're indifferent, but they're valuable. They have a positive value. So this is where the modern meaning of stoic comes in, right? Partly that, partly that, uh, yes, the moral rigour. And, moral and rigor. just the, the ability to sort of see all that might be seen as the important things in your life being laid waste and just not even bat an eyelid. Uh, the, yes and no, yes and no. What you might, you're, the way you're describing it makes it sound more like there was a, a dissident Stoic called Aristo. Aristo, an early, a contemporary of Zeno really, or a little bit younger than Zeno, he was what you might call a kind of ultra-Socratic and he, he refused to accept Zeno's distinction between what, what he called preferred and dispreferred indifference. So, okay, things other than virtue are indifference in the sense that they don't determine happiness, or its opposite. But nonetheless, things like health and um, fame and uh, property and the well-being of our family, they are preferred. That is, they're things which human beings naturally want to have. But it's the, the virtues enable you to, to make appropriate selection between these. 
So you won't be a happy person if you just have certain preferred indifference. You know, you might have at any given moment wealth, you might have at any moment a flourishing family, but you won't be a happy in the sense of leading a good human life unless you also have the virtues. But the preferred indifference matter. So it's quite, it's quite a subtle and complex view. And the Stoics would not be very happy, actually. Well, they would, no, they wouldn't. <laughs> they, they would not want your life to be laid waste in the way that you've described. But if it was laid waste, they would, they would not necessarily see you as unhappy as long as you still had the virtues and you could respond appropriately to the laying waste of your life. Hmm. That's what we have. We have the capacity, even in poverty, in illness, in, in the destruction of our family, to live a good human life. That's what they believe in. But no one would choose to have their life laid in place. It's a, a com more complex and, in fact, more credible view than often is supposed. Indeed, it actually not, it doesn't totally fly in the face of common sense the way, well, for example, the Epicurean view of pleasure seems to in well, some of yes, its aspects. That's, that's another story. Let's not get into that story right now. But um, that being said, I can see from a logic splitter's perspective how there's lots of ways into that where you could, you could critique it. Quite of course, easily. and they did, endlessly. endlessly. Yeah. Mm. Now this gives us a very brief introduction to physics and ethics, so what the world is, including human beings, how the human beings are supposed to be in this world. And I suppose logic we don't need to spend too much time on. Well, logic would include, I suppose, it, it, uh, as I say, apart from formal logic, you have, um, it would include the, 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 the question of body and the nature of body. They did believe in some non-material things, but everything is, is a very functional aspect of bodies. Oh, I see. So a non-material thing might be something along the lines of... Time. Yes. Right. And we have lecter. We have things that can be spoken of but are not material. The, the meaning, the significance of language is, is non-material. Thereby disposing of any need for forms. Exactly. But the good, for instance, the good is going to be something that is instantiated in the world. The, good, the, the world is, the universe is good, you know, God is good, potentially human beings are good insofar as they realise their, their full nature. And knowledge then, knowledge is again of the, of the world as so understood. They are non-sceptical, they're realists about knowledge in the sense that they believe that knowledge is possible, knowledge both in the sense of particular knowledge and knowledge of theory, because those are the two forms of scepticism, scepticism about reality and scepticism about the, the, the possibility of, of of theory. Uh, they were non-sceptical in both these senses. So how did they address issues like the fact that our senses can lie to us and trick us? And stuff well, like they this? would say, yes, of course we know that, and, but we can distinguish between correct and incorrect apprehensions. The um, fantasia catalecticae, there's certain appearances, the world appears to us in a certain way, but there are correct appearances and incorrect appearances, and we can form knowledge, we can achieve knowledge. We have um, knowledge is different from opinion. So knowledge is possible. Uh, yes, there can be mistakes, and we may get things wrong, but nonetheless, in principle, in principle, knowledge is possible. In empirical terms, knowledge is possible. In ethical terms, in principle. So again, maybe very difficult, maybe, maybe quite hard to achieve. Nonetheless, it's in principle possible. 
So, so we just draw distinctions. We draw distinctions between, you know, getting it right, not getting it right. You know, we draw distinctions. And those distinctions correspond to something, as it were, in the world. The best version may not occur very much, but nonetheless, it's there. It's in principle possible. Again, not so counterintuitive and, no. and indeed quite modern, perhaps, perhaps. If one were a sort of modern, easygoing, empirical scientist, you might say, yes, there is yes. the possibility of true knowledge. There's a possibility of certainty. It's very elusive and we're always working toward it. Yes. But... Yes. And we may never get there, but... But it's there. It, it makes sense to have this as your paradigm. So with that, Christopher Gill, I'd like to thank you once again for being on the Schwepp. And uh, until we meet again, stay esoteric. <laughs>